This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with the feature writer at Cessna Pilots Magazine about his doctoral dissertation that measured the degree to which the organizational structure of small airports affects their economic performance. It's a fascinating study. In the news, two biz jets collide at Houston Hobby. Airline cockpit safety after an off-duty pilot tries to shut down the engines in flight. A brief review of the NBAA show. A new FAA administrator gets congressional approval. And Spirit Airlines stops pilot and flight attendant training. We also have an Australia desk report and lots of listener mail. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 772 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. Happy November. As we're, as you're listening to this, and we're recording this a couple of days ahead of time, so I don't know where 2023 went, but um, we've, we're coming crashing to 2024. Yeah, rapidly approaching. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He had a career as an air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening, everybody. And uh, I can't even say Happy Halloween because that was yesterday, wasn't it? That's right. <laughs> oh, well, Happy Halloween anyway. It's the, uh, it's the season for uh, that kind of merriment, yes. I think. Also with us is our main man, Micah. And as everybody can see, I'm still in my Halloween costume, dressed up as a ghoul, like I usually am. And uh, and today uh, was the first day I got to turn on my central heat because it uh, turned out to be November. And uh, 70 degrees over the weekend, and then Monday came, and 66 degrees inside when I walked upstairs. Yeah, we have a frost coming in a few days. Yeah, it's going to be 29 here tonight. And these are all, uh, by the way, Fahrenheit for those of you uh, listening yes, overseas. Yes, we should mention that. Yes. <laughs> Good point. Well, our guest this episode is Dr. Mike Jones. Jonesy. He's feature writer at Cessna Pilots Magazine. Now, Jonesy is a 4,000-hour flyer over some 30 years. He has over 800 Young Eagle flights and more than 100 Angel flights. Jonesy's been writing for Cessna Pilots Magazine for... Five years, I guess. He writes about flying adventures, the history of aviation and aviation pioneers, and the technology of aviation. You can often see him at air shows and fly-ins, collecting interviews for his next feature. Now, Jonesy was a U.S. Air Force lieutenant, worked as an air traffic controller in Southeast Asia at the end of the, at the, end of the Vietnam War, and he was even chairman of an airport authority. Well, all that and a lot more is interesting in and of itself, but in his doctoral dissertation, Jonesy looked at the organizational structure of small airports, specifically the degree to which politicians degrade airport performance. Jonesy, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. 
Thank you very much, and a pleasure to meet all of you finally. Absolutely. Now, your study, which we're going to talk about um, coming up after the news, uh, is is really kind of fascinating. And you didn't look at all airports, right? You you focused on smaller airports and the organizational structure that's, there. That's absolutely right, yes. And, and the reason I was interested in small airports, because as a general aviation pilot, that's where I spend 99% of my time. And every airplane, every flight needs an airport. And yet so many of them are just shambles. And I, I mean, you, Rob, you've been flying for years and years. You've been to some of these places where you just wonder how in the world they stay in business. And so I decided to do my doctoral dissertation to see if I could predict which airports will do better and which airports will do worse and had some success with that. And I guess because you had to narrow down your topic, you had to choose uh, the measuring the degree in which politicians degrade the performance at small airports as opposed to just measuring the way politicians degrade everything they touch. <laughs> well, yeah, that would have been another very interesting study. And by the way, I also skipped all the big airports. If you're talking Charlotte and JFK and O'Hare and airports like that, they've got oodles of money. People do research on them all day long, every day. So small airports are really a completely new area of research, and they're fascinating. And there are a lot of them. I know we're going to get into this in a, in a bit, but there are, as I recall, uh, Jonesy, maybe a little less than 5,000 small that airports. That is correct. In, in the FAA database, which was the source, the, the starting point for my research, there are actually over 20,000 landing places in the United States. Now, a lot of those aren't for my Cessna or yours. Uh, you know, they're, they're helicopter landing pads at hospitals and things like that. The, the space shuttle landing track down at Cape Kennedy. All right. You know, I, I'd love to land there, but chances are that's not going to happen. But there are about 5,000 general aviation airports, and there's only 493 airports that are served by the commercial airlines. Wow. So there's, Interesting there's a big gap yes. and lots of room to explore. All right. We're going to get into this pretty deep uh, coming up, and we're looking forward to that. But first, we've got some aviation news from the past week. Our first item comes from AIN Online. BizJets collide after unauthorized takeoff attempt at Houston Hobby. Rob, this is about a, a Hawker and a Cessna or a Citation Mustang at William Hobby Airport in Houston. How did these two aircraft come together? Uh, luckily, they barely touched uh, because this could have been an absolute disaster. Um, when I, uh, Of course, I, I saw the news when it came across, and because it mentioned a hawker, which I used to fly, it, it caught my eyeballs immediately. But one, uh, one aircraft, uh, I believe the uh, hawker was supposed to be lining up to wait, as the old uh, way we used to say it was taxi into position and hold. Uh, I think, actually, I kind of like the hold better than wait. It seems a little more dramatic to me. But uh, in this case, uh, the uh, the citation was landing on a crossing runway, and uh, they met at the intersection because the hawker took off on his own. Uh, he took the line up and wait as, yeah, you're good to go, dude. Uh, and he just poured the coals to it. Now, of course, we didn't hear the 
uh, cockpit voice recorders from uh, either of these two airplanes. Uh, but um, uh, it's it's kind of doubtful that the uh, the controller would have cleared the guy for takeoff, knowing that there was an aircraft about to meet him uh, at an intersection. But again, they're going to have to go back through the recordings that the FAA has because they record everything, all the conversations. Uh, but w- the one thing we don't hear, and again, I don't know if this hawker had a uh, cockpit voice recorder or not, uh, but it, uh, it, it should have, uh, I'm thinking. Uh, but um, the good part is that if, if the cockpit voice recorder, uh, I'm sorry, the recordings are intact, uh, you'll be able to hear the conversation between the two pilots in the cockpit. And um, unless there was something that uh, got in the way of the controller saying, line up and wait, uh, they're going to be asking, okay, guys, why did you take off? Uh, you know, I mean, there, there's situational awareness, uh, not just, uh, you know, what what's happening in the cockpit, but did you not hear the local controller clearing somebody to land on 13 right, which intersects your runway? So, you know, that that's a simplified version, but there's so many things that we don't know. Um, but this is not the first time that we've had uh, uh, a case of a pilot misinterpreting a controller's instructions uh, out of a lineup and wait. And uh, I wonder if, uh, you know, I wonder if we have these kinds of problems in other countries because the lineup and wait came from uh, ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and, you know, they it was like uh, their version of trying to put us into the metric system so that everybody everywhere sounded the same. But we'll see what, what happened here. But again, this could have been really, really ugly. You know, I don't follow this as close as, as some of you guys do, but have you found that accidents like this are happening more and more or or close calls are happening more and more recently or is it just the same and they're just better reported because of live atc etc well you know i actually went back to listen to the live atc recording uh, from this uh, incident no accident because this this was technically an accident because there was major damage to the aircraft but when when I listened to it, it was a little hard to uh, to hear some of the conversations because again we don't know where the receivers are that Live ATC is picking up, and um, so I could not verify. But I didn't hear uh, I didn't even hear the tower put the hawker into the lineup and wait position. Uh, all I heard was uh, you know we had a, a collision at the intersection and uh, the airport is closed and we've got to get to somebody I went whoa uh, but again so but to your question uh, it's been a tough year I mean go back to the early part of uh, 2023 and uh, when that um, uh, I think it was American Airlines triple uh, seven tried to cross the runway in front of a Delta at JFK. And then there was just just this cluster of close calls. And, and I don't know, it seems to me like we do such a good job of, of reporting these things that uh, I, I don't know that there's a, a blip in here that we're suddenly reporting better. Uh, I think this was a really crummy year, and uh, at least in my opinion. 
Well, it's just, I fly a lot and, and line up and wait to me is as clear. I remember when they changed it from, from the whole terminology, but line up and wait. I mean, you read it back, you read it back with your call sign and you sit there and you don't hit the throttles. So I'm wondering, trying to unwind the chain of causality here. I'm wondering what was going on in the tower. You know, there, there's, everybody knows there's a pilot shortage and most people are where there's a mechanic shortage. But there's also an air traffic controller shortage that the people were hired after the Reagan mass execution have all turned 60 or higher. And they are retirement age for controllers is 60. So out in Oklahoma City, they are scrambling to get more controllers trained and in place. And it's a long, hard process. And I'm wondering if something happened in the control tower. Uh, Rob, I mean, you, you've flown more big jets than I've ever seen. But possible? Sure, it's possible. In fact, controllers actually have to uh, retire earlier than 60. Uh, 50, what is it, 55, I believe. Uh, oh, I thought it was One 60. of our listeners might get that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, again, there's just so many possibilities here. One that you just mentioned, Jonesy, sure that it could have been a controller uh, looking at one thing and uh, thinking something else. But again, to your point, line up and wait it should only be interpreted as line up and hold, as in stop. Don't yeah. go anywhere. Don't don't goose the threat. You, you can't do anything Sit. other than get on the runway. Um, and if the pilots heard enough to get on the runway, then it makes me wonder why they didn't hear the part about hold. Unless... To your point, Jonesy, that maybe something came across on the radio that uh, got covered up by somebody else, and they might have heard cleared for takeoff, and they said, "Oh, that must be us because we're line up and wait," and they just went. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to cook the pilots or the controllers because we just don't know enough. And if if you haven't flown an airplane in in a busy area. Uh, you don't know how crazy it can be when you're trying to pick up. Was that was that for us? That that cleared for takeoff. Uh, and technically, I, you know, if you're not sure, the PIC is supposed to say, "Hang on, we're not going anywhere. Make sure that was for us." Especially this year with all of the uh, things that have gone on. But also, to your point, Jonesy, I mean, lots of new pilots. We don't know how much time this crew had together, flying together, uh, operating this airplane. So it's going to be interesting to see how this comes out. From uh, U.S. Government Code 8336, an air traffic controller shall be separated from service on the last day of the month in which he becomes 56 years of age. 56? Well, there was a time in my life when that sounded pretty old, but I'll tell you, it doesn't sound very old right now. My goodness. Yeah. Well, it feels to me like as long as the uh, the recordings are intact, that this ought to be something that can be figured out pretty easily. At least it feels that way to me. That's true. But the question is also going to be, how do you prevent the next crew that's, from that's the doing the question. same yes. thing yes. somewhere down the line? So. Well, we had another kind of exciting event. Uh, this is reported in alaskapublic.org. How safe are cockpits? Aviation experts weigh in after Horizon Air flight scare. 
And you've probably heard this, but there was an off-duty Alaska Airlines pilot riding in the jump seat on a Horizon Air Embraer 175 who attempted to shut down the plane's engines apparently in mid-flight. He's been arrested and charged with attempted murder and reckless endangerment. Uh, He was um, removed from the cockpit and subdued in the cabin until the, the plane was able to land. But uh, in- interestingly, this man didn't raise any suspicions with the plane's pilots. His neighbors didn't see anything particularly worrisome, and neither did the uh, people at the flying club where, where he instructed. He had a recent medical exam that was in September, um, but there were no apparent prior indications, uh, although there had been some talk about depression and there's something about magic mushrooms uh, involved in this as well. Another tough one, uh, you know, how do you identify crew, doesn't have to be the pilot, but crew that um, is potentially under some kind of, you know, mental duress or stability, instability or depression or something. And, um, you know, make sure that that condition doesn't impact uh, the, the flying public. There's been a lot of discussion uh, among, you know, the circles about, you know, dealing with mental health of pilots, which may or may not be an issue here. But he specifically was uh, under the influence of psychedelic mushrooms. He admitted to it, uh, talked about it. And uh, regardless of his mental health situation, the psychedelic mushrooms are are another thing. And, uh, uh, you know, there's an old joke about uh, how can you tell when it kicked in? Well, we could tell when it kicked in at this point. And so, you know, he might have, he would have gone through security and, and everything would have been fine. But he also, once he left the cockpit, from what I understand voluntarily, he told the flight attendants, uh, I don't trust myself. You need to subdue me and, and, and tape me down. Uh, so he, he was he said aware. That to the flight attendants? This is what I understand happened. He voluntarily left the, uh, the flight deck. There wasn't a fight or anything. And this is what was discussed uh, last night in Isaac's chat. And I've seen other reports about that. So, um, and he was charged with 83 counts of, uh, potential murder, I guess. But, but, but th- this was seemed to be a, uh, a, a drug issue. And, uh, and mushrooms are illegal in, 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 in Oregon. <laughs> and, and how do you know that, Micah? Because I listen to KUOW, uh, KUOW uh, radio out of Seattle, Washington, and they report a lot about Oregon. Oh, okay. You know, this this uh, re- uh, report from uh, uh, the public radio station up in uh, in Alaska, uh, I, I mean, I, I listen to NPR. I admit it. I'm sorry for those people that don't. It's your problem, not mine. <laughs> but uh, I do have a number of uh, thoughts about this story because uh, – the uh, oh halfway through it says pilots are required to undergo psychological screening as part of their regular uh, regularly scheduled medical exams. That's you know it it sounds good on paper, but technically it it doesn't work that way uh, because uh, we are uh, you know I, in fact I tried to pull up a uh, a sample. Uh, uh, medical exam uh, form here before the show started, and I couldn't get through it all. But uh, w- they basically ask you, so 
had any problems lately? Uh, seen any uh, medical professionals or any uh, clinicians? Uh, I mean, I, if I'm not mistaken, we're supposed to um, uh, also report if we're if we're seeing a therapist. I mean, hey, I you know I'm having some marriage problems and uh, I want to talk to so you know. So I mean, but again, if I go, I'm not telling these people that. I mean, then then the FAA doesn't know, and they have no way of knowing. And I think David's trying to say something, but he's on mute. Yeah, well, I'm trying to figure out how the hell that you can have a fly, pass a flying exam after all these years. <laughs> you, you mean considering the sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Like- well, and, and you're and you're constantly seeing a therapist. Uh, well, I know, but I don't think it counts if I see her in bed that's your uh, wife that's right that, it depends on I the mean, kind of therapist rob well and, and it depends on the kind of therapy i'm getting uh <laughs> and uh so so far david it it really hasn't been working but um <laughs> you know we uh, uh you know i just keep trying you know i'm, I'm kind of a glutton for punishment and uh but no, Sorry, I, it, I couldn't let that one go. You know, it was too easy. <laughs> you know, it was really funny because as I'm sitting here watching and I can see David emphatically going, yeah, and I couldn't hear anything he was saying, but uh, I had a feeling it was going to be something fun. Um, but again, you know, they, they depend on us to report what's going on and, and you know, how, how will this affect uh, the jump seat privileges that pilots have? It, I'm sure it's not going to be good. It just can't. But, uh, you know, if if somebody comes into my cockpit and shows me an ID, uh, they're required. Basically, what they do is they, they have to check in at, at operations of the particular airline that they want to fly on. And then uh, usually the um, the pilot that wants the jump seat will meet the crew in operations and say, hey, Captain, I'd love to fly along on your flight to, to uh, wherever the heck that was they were going today. And the captain says, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, unless there's something that makes the captain uncomfortable or, you know, he knows that someone else wants the jump seat too or who knows what. But 99 times out of 100, the captain's probably just going to say, sure, come on along. Uh, because you're you're a captain on a on another airplane, in fact, one that's bigger than this one for the major carrier, they're going to go, hey, what, what reason do we have to deny this person uh, the, the jump seat? And so it's a judgment call. It always is. Uh, but again, this thing about pilots are screened uh, for, uh, you know, whether they're loony or not, I mean, it just doesn't work like that. I think what you, what, what, what you really, what's really important that you're trying to say or that you, you have sort of said, Rob, but I want to, is that these tests are, the mental health tests are self-reporting and subjective. And I've taken a number of them because all you guys know I'm crazy and all my friends suspect that too. But anybody with any degree of intelligence can make it come out any way they want to make it come out. And so they're, they're pretty close to useless. Is that what I said? I'd venture to say a real issue here is the self-reporting. The, the, it's only got downsides for the pilot. Right. There can only be bad things. So unless it's really obvious or egregious, I think the under-reporting of mental health issues is probably almost total. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, look at the stir that happened. I don't know. When did that? Euro a German wings thing uh, happened. Was that 
12 years 2015. ago? 2015. I went and looked it up. Okay. Uh, so it was not that long ago, actually. Uh, but then suddenly, oh my gosh, wow, pilots aren't screened? Oh my Lord, we, we've got to find out if, uh, if there must be something we can do about that. And, and then it kind of just went in the, in the hole. Because FAA and everybody realizes that you can't tell a pilot your life, your livelihood is dependent on being 100% mentally stable all the time, day and night, for 40 years or whenever, you know, however long it takes to, to get to retirement. And they keep changing in retirement age. Um, but, I mean, we're just normal, despite what Micah says, we're just normal people. And, you know, we have problems. You know, you get, you get, you know, some serious, uh, you run into some serious uh, financial issues or marriage issues, or you just really... Uh, you know, if you uh, ever read some of the stuff I wrote for AOPA Pilot about uh, interactions I've had with other captains I flew with, you'd say, oh, my God, which one of those guys was nuts? <laughs> uh, but, I mean, y- you put two people in a in a small area, which, I mean, even in a 7.3 cockpit, I mean, there's maybe three feet between you. And uh, and the other pilot, and you could sit there for two, three, four, five hours, and if if the other pilot's a jerk, I mean, it can make things really miserable. Uh, and and day in and day out, uh, I mean, for years to say that no one's ever going to have an issue is is insane. Well, and pilots. Cannot report. Excuse me, Micah. I'm still talking. Sorry. When I'm through talking, I will give you the. F- I was going to say I'll give you. The, I'll give you the finger, but it's not exactly what I it. meant. <laughs> but Max is going to edit that. Uh, but I was going to say uh, uh, when. Oh, see, now I completely lost my train of thought. So what the heck was I going to say, Micah? I think you were going to mention that people forget about Egypt Air on, what was it, 900, oh, uh, yeah. 990? And, 990 uh, in 1999, killed uh, 217 people. Right, and, and FedEx uh, 705, uh, same issue happened with FedEx 705 with the spear gun. Uh, th- these things do occur on occasion, and uh, there's not a lot that can be done about it. No, there really, there really isn't. I think part of it is, to the extent possible, having controls in place or uh, procedures in place so that, you know, if something unexpected happens, that there's some, you know, fallback. I mean, in in this case, the obvious example is there were two other guys in the cockpit that could correct or attempt to correct the situation. Max, I I was going to say this incident is the poster child event for a two-pilot cockpit. That's where I was going. When people start to say, oh, we can do it with one pilot. He'll be fine. What can go wrong? This is exactly the sort of crazy, off-the-wall, never thought about, but it happens, and it will happen. And the other thing that, and we've talked about this before, um, is uh, trying to lessen the stigma of being in therapy or uh, being a little bit depressed or trying to deal with life's, you know, issues and things like that. Um, you know, that's another, another angle to this, I think. And, and we've talked about, about that in the past. Well, again, it's a really difficult piece of, uh, uh, it's really intense pressure that uh, any aviation regulator puts on 
all of its pilots. And not just pilots, but mechanics are under this kind of uh, uh, strain. Uh, and um, to, to say that you, you cannot have any problems ever. And, and so what, what it forces people to do is go underground. And uh, there, are, there are people flying with various uh, medications that uh, they shouldn't be flying with. And, uh, you know, again, if you, if you make it impossible, people are going to find a way around it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, just recently, we saw the 2023 NBAA Business Aviation Convention and Exposition NBAA base that was held in Las Vegas. And Rob, you found a really nice uh, summary video of the of the event that I I really really like this because it it was kind of I don't know it felt a little bit different than most you know video wrap-ups of of an event like this. It was almost entirely about the airplanes. The guy that did this is a Chinese aviation and travel blogger, author, does some other things as well. And uh, as he visited the the interesting aircraft, um, you really kind of got to see some things that, you know, it'd it'd be difficult to see uh, if you didn't attend. And even if you did attend, you wouldn't probably get into so many of these airplanes. No, you wouldn't get into these airplanes at all, I can tell you. In fact, uh, but the uh, for the people that didn't see the video, we'll put it in the, uh, in the show notes. But uh, it started out with uh, the Airbus A220, the business jet version of it, uh, and also a business jet version of a 737. And uh, some of the uh, other highlights included the uh, Velocity, I was going to say Velociraptor. No, that was the other movie. Um, Velocicop- Volocopter. 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 Right, the Volocopter. It, and it flew, too. It wasn't just a static display. That's right. It had a guy inside. And uh, uh, so, I mean, th- there were a lot of things like that, uh, a lot of flying, uh, cool flying machines. and uh, But again, it's uh, it's the biggest business aviation uh, event in, in the world. And um, usually there are mm, somewhere close to 30,000 people that uh, visit the show. I, I didn't make it this year, but uh, uh, I, of course it's in Vegas, which eh, I personally, I can take or leave Las Vegas, but uh, I'd rather leave it. But, <laughs> but uh, again, that's me. Uh, but again, it, it, it has lots of, uh, Things that are of importance for business aviation, not just airplanes, but uh, the companies that maintain them, uh, the companies that uh, build the uh, or, or you know they have the uh, parts distribution uh, and all the side uh, educational venues too. I mean, the safety committee uh, for NBAA, which I was a part of for five years. I mean, we put together a single pilot safety stand down. Uh, which was a an event now that is a a regular part of NBAA. There's a safety day. Uh, there are again educational uh, forums for young people that want to get into the uh, business aviation world. Because let's face it, the problem that this segment of the industry has is that when a young person says, "Oh, I'm interested in aviation," the first thing that somebody says, "Oh, you want to be an airline pilot?" They go, "Uh." Yeah, I guess so. Because uh, what else is there? Uh, well, there's plenty. Uh, I mean, uh, 
A, a friend of mine once said that uh, for every pilot job, there are probably a hundred supporting jobs of various sizes and categories uh, that support that flight. Uh, mechanics, flight attendants, air traffic controllers, uh, you know, avionics repair people, ground uh, service people, the fuelers, the, it goes on and on and on. So this is a big, big monster, but focused around private business jets. Yeah, yeah. And there was a segment in there about Kevin LaRosa, who uh, does air-to-air uh, photography and filming that was uh, that was fascinating and uh, a part of that is uh, sort of look at some of the some of the cameras that they use uh, for for creating video and they basically developed this they call it the cinejet cinejet i guess i'm going to describe how that was done in the top gun maverick movie apparently the uh, you know the star of that movie who everybody knows uh, was was so interested in this kind of custom designed or developed uh, a jet for uh, doing the photography. Tom Cruise was so interested in it that he he wanted to fly it himself. So uh, so he did that. Uh, it's a great video, and even if you're not kind of directly focused on or interested in uh, business aviation, I, I think I'm, everybody listening to this podcast would would find most of that video really really fascinating and. Uh, interesting to watch. So, oh, sure, and and it, it's a huge evolutionary step from where it was twenty five years ago when Clay Lacey uh, out in California started filming aircraft in a in a Learjet uh, that had a you know state of the art then kind of camera sticking out on the wing. But this was absolutely really incredible. Uh, of course, the the secret that everybody that flies airplanes knows is that Tom Cruise wasn't really flying the airplane, even though you saw him in the cockpit, you saw him doing all the pilot stuff, except that he was in the back seat. And, and of course, the if you didn't know what was going on, you'd say, wow, but yeah, I saw him, he was doing it. And yeah, but there was somebody up in the front actually doing it. He was just kind of faking it. Sorry, I hope I didn't spoil it for anybody. But <laughs> It's a great movie, though, nevertheless. All right. Um, just one, uh, uh, a, a quick item just to follow up. Uh, we previously talked about the, the fact that we didn't have a confirmed FAA administrator. We just had somebody temporarily in that position. Uh, but on October 24th of this year, 2023, the U.S. Senate unanimously voted to approve Michael Whitaker as the new FAA administrator. And, of course, that's for a five-year term. So um, uh, it, it's good that that position has been filled. It's tough to run an agency or, or it's tough for an agency to function as well as it could without uh, without the lead in place. So that's uh, that's good news. But but let, let's not miss another aspect of this, that the the Senate— Voted unanimously yes. on something. I mean, Can you now, granted, we're not talking about the House, but the Senate voted unanimously. It means they all got together and went, "Yeah, this this is our man," and that's pretty interesting. Now, of course, I have a feeling that maybe Mister uh, Whitaker wouldn't be the administrator if this job had fallen to the House of Representatives, but we won't get into politics. No, we're not going to do that. But we do have an administrator. 
No, but the great news is that uh, in reading his resume, this guy is ultimately qualified. He has got so much background for this as as a private pilot, as being a former member of, of the FAA, working on on the next gen project, working on uh, on on the um, what he did with was Hyundai as uh, advanced mobility. I mean, he is exactly who I think we want in there at this time, and so we're we're very fortunate that it actually happened. I'll second Micah's motion on that one. This this guy is supremely well qualified in an organization that has needed leadership for decades. I mean, really. And the other problem is they get micromanaged by Congress and every budget resolution. But that's another problem. Like you say, we're not getting into the politics. But this guy is a gem, and I wish him all the world, best in the world. The FAA Reauthorization Act of 2023 is uh, you're working its way through the process. Uh, we, we don't have time uh, this episode to get into it, but uh, there are a number of significant legislative changes that are in that authoriz- Reauthorization Act, and uh, maybe in an episode coming up pretty soon, we'll be able to to go through those. But um, they do, um, you know, there's there's uh, changes to uh, refunds required of air, fer- uh, air carriers for passengers, um, seating uh, family members, especially children, you know, together with the family, something about um, uh, wheelchairs and trying to accommodate those in a little better fashion. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there, and, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about that coming uh, in, in a future episode. But uh, what we will do is we'll put a... Uh, a link in the show notes for this episode if you want to jump ahead and take a look at what are some of the changes that we can expect in the reauthorization bill. All right, and uh, finally, one more news item, and this comes from CNBC.com. Spirit Airlines halts new pilot and flight attendant training after a difficult quarter and Pratt engine issue. So... Uh, here we go, Rob. They're, the airline says it's going to suspend training for new pilots and flight attendants in November, quote, until further notice. Yeah, just what the uh, the folks at uh, both of these airlines uh, wanted to hear, because the uh, the uh, testimony or the, the hearing on the antitrust rebuttals against Spirit and JetBlue merging had just, had just begun, and uh, then Spirit goes and has a... Uh, a lousy third quarter, and uh, this is the first time that I've heard of any airline in the last couple of years saying we're not going to train anybody anymore. Uh, but it's sad to hear. But of course, it's not just the the bad quarter uh, that uh, I think had uh, the people at Spirit make this decision, but it's that it's that lingering uh, engine issue with with the Pratt Motors. But then you'd probably know more about that than I do, uh, Max. And uh, if you look at the data about how many airplanes Spirit is, it looks like are going to be grounded uh, in the next year. It's it's unbelievable. Here, the carrier said it expects thirteen planes to be grounded in January, rising to forty-one by December of next year. That's at one time. I mean, an airline doesn't even like to lose one airplane but a dozen two dozen three dozen this is this is unbelievable and uh, again I I don't quite know how this 
whole Pratt, you know, uh, engine issue got to be as messy as it is. It is big too. Just to give you another data point on how big it is. How big? How big is it, Max? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. RTX, uh, formerly known as Raytheon, took a three billion dollar charge for this manufacturing defect. That's what the uh, RTX, which um, Pratt and Whitney's underneath RTX. That's how much the corporation thinks that it's going to cost them to resolve this, but. Uh, we, we talked about it about before a little bit. There, there's um, some engine parts are manufactured out of uh, powdered metal, in this case um, nickel. And the process is that you you take this, and this is very very fine powder, and you sinter it. You, you create a preform of the part, and then you you sinter it, um, which in this case is applying temperature high temperature, but below the melting point of the metal, and the particles fuse together into a, a solid part. Uh, one way, this is a really bizarre kind of analogy, but one way you can think of, it, think of it is making a snowball, right? You start out with all this loose stuff, and you put it in your two hands, and you apply pressure, and then you get one, one thing out of it. It's almost like that. Good analogy. But the... Um, I believe, well, there is a, a division of Pratt or a unit of Pratt um, in upstate New York, HMI, Homogeneous Metals Incorporated, I guess, that uh, does a lot of this powdered metal stuff. And I don't, you know, I haven't seen this published, but I believe that's probably where this problem arose. But there was some kind of contamination of the of the powdered metal. Something else got into that powdered metal and then into the part which affects the, uh, you know, the integrity of the part. So uh, th- this, is a, this is a huge problem. And going, uh, going back to Spirit, as you, know, as, as you mentioned, Rob, there's a number of aircraft that are going to have to be taken out of service so that the uh, um, engines can be torn down and repaired. And this is not a quick fix for each of these engines. But you know what, what really kind of, confused me about this whole thing is that I would have thought that when Pratt has all of these customers out there with these with these uh, aircraft that have these engine issues that they would have started pulling engines off the line of the new aircraft and say uh, you know and telling the, the the customers that are waiting guys I'm sorry there's going to be a delay because we've got to fix the engines on these uh, on this fleet of uh, aircraft that are st- already out there flying, they're going to be grounded. And then that's not what Pratt did. So I, I just kind of thought that was an odd decision. But Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the timeline was of the, you know, the events and who knew what, when, and what action was taken when. I, I don't have any visibility into but, that. But there are other things hurting spirit, too. Uh, Cranky wrote a column about it that uh, just came out earlier, and he, he mentioned that uh, um, spirit said that, you know, not only did their quarter three revenue plunge by 17.4%, but the total revenue per passenger dropped 13.5%, uh, and it was only that good because of their ancillary fees. Um, 
But he, the Spirit says it, um, and I'm quoting what he said. This is quote, a quote from Spirit. We continue to see discounted fares for travel booked through pre-Thanksgiving, and unfortunately, we have not seen the anticipated return to a normal demand and pricing environment for the peak holiday period. And Cranky also goes on to say, tomorrow, you'll see how this impacts Frontier, expecting the same kind of thing um, for the an ultra-low-cost carrier. Um but what I'm kind of curious about is, is, is Spirit just trying to stop the hemorrhaging right now because either the merger is going to go through with JetBlue and it's going to be over and they don't need to deal with anything again, or they're not going to merge and they're going to have to go bankrupt because they can't afford to continue on their own. So they're just trying to save as much money as they can right now so they can go out with as much money as they can in their pockets. Yeah. Desperate times. Interesting thought. Spirit is averaging $65.41 revenue per ticket you can't run an airline for 65 dollars a seat no it's 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 a preposterous assertion and micah i think your analysis or that other person is just right it's they're going to have to change their whole pricing algorithm their whole value proposition that's that's my two cents do do we do we have to give Micah, that much credit. I mean, you know, we can't. I mean, it's, no, don't don't give it to me. I'm I'm quoting from Cranky, and, and Brett deserves oh. the credit. <laughs> okay, yeah, Brett Brett would like that. No, I I it, it is it is sad, but I think your your point about it it is kind of strange that this is happening just as the uh, the uh, you know uh, session is going on about and whether this is going to be an antitrust issue or not. Uh, it looks a little uh, shady, but hey, we'll see what happens. It's the airline industry. All right. Well, again, we're speaking with Mike Jones, Jonesy, and we want to take a look at this uh, uh, this uh, dissertation, the data that you uh, uncovered. But since we're talking about small airports and the ways they are organized and how their performance relates to that organizational structure. Maybe spend a few minutes telling us a little bit about the ways that airports can be organized. What are the different possibilities? That's a great lead in, Max, and thank you. Um, In short, you know, speaking most globally, an airport can be managed as a single-function organization or as a multi-function organization. A single-function organization is when everybody in the chain of command is doing only one thing, and that is working on that some aspect of that airport. A multi-function organization is when you're part of the parks department or the highway department or parks and recs and so on. And I'm embarrassed to tell you, 54% of the airports, of the general aviation airports in America, are managed with that kind of a multi-function organization. They're run out of City Hall. The people are generally not well-informed as to aeronautical issues and concerns and opportunities. And as such, they tend to do a terrible job of managing them. And there's another issue that comes to mind. In general, governments are terrible at running a business, especially a business that's trying to earn a profit. Uh, They're great at running Department of Motor Vehicles. They're great at running the tax department or property department. But those are all about providing a certain level of service equitably. We're fair. We're even. We treat everybody the same way. Well, treating someone who just showed up on a Gulfstream the same way is not how you're going to win their hearts and minds. 
But the short answer is, and this is the cart, the cool stuff about this particular research is it really hurts the performance of the airport. How did you select the the airports for the study? What were the small, what's a definition of a small airport that you went after? You didn't look at every single small airport, right? I assume. No. Well, in a sense, I did. Okay. I went to the FAA and got copies of their Form 5010 report. And every airport every year files a 5010 report, and they combine them into this giant spreadsheet. And it includes all sorts of data about the airport, its location, uh, number of airplanes based there, number of hangars, acreage, altitude, just all the little runways and everything else. And there are 20,002 airports listed on that that, uh, report. Well, most of them, about 15,000, I could get rid of right away because they're things like hospital helicopter landing pads or private runways at resorts that have no commercial service activity. So that leaves about 5,000. And I can't do a study of 5,000 airports. It's just too big. So I ended up looking at the airports that were in Florida, Virginia, and North Carolina because they had economic impact studies that were fairly recent. They were all before COVID. I certainly didn't want the confounding effects of COVID. And uh, they were all done in the same manner. They used the same basic variables and, and procedures. So it made them very nicely comparable. And then one last thing I did is I kicked out all of the big hub airports, Orlando, for example, or Dulles or Atlanta. Those are such huge ecosystems in their own right. Lots of people are studying them. You don't need me for that. And by the way, how big is the aviation, the airport industry? Aviation generates $1.2 trillion a year in economic impact for America. And the little general aviation airports generate about 10% of that. So we're talking about a collection of businesses doing something on the order of $100 billion, $120, $150 billion a year. That's worth studying. We should know how they work and how to make them work better. Because the short answer is about 54% of them are not working very well at all. As I mentioned, I ran into uh, uh, an article by Jonesy the other day when I was at lunch and I, there happened to be a copy of the Cessna Pilots uh, Association magazine laying on the table, and I, I opened it up, and there was this story by uh, by uh, Jonesy, make your airport great with the right management tools. And I picked a paragraph out of that that I thought was really, really important um, in which he defines um, – some elements of uh, of success, uh, what what you can predict, and uh, he said, think about a private business. Shareholders invest in a company, but delegate their authority to a board of directors. With public airports, the board of directors usually is the city council or the county commissioners, most of whom have no interest in the airport. To make things worse, the whole process of government is about fairness not efficiency, stability, not innovation, accountability, not customer satisfaction. This ripples through the airport in many ways, mostly bad. I'd love that. I, so I, I had to mention that tonight, but I think that says a lot about what this report is about. And, and thank you, Rob. Uh, and, and you're exactly right. But I don't think I'm going to get a Nobel Prize 
for saying that there's a lot of bad managers out there or that politicians don't do a particularly good job at running a business for profit. The thing that I did that's really noteworthy is I quantified it. And now when somebody says, yeah, my airport's a pile of crap and there's nothing I can do about it, I can say, well, actually there is because your state says your airport is producing $10 million a year of economic impact. And my computer model says it should be $35 million. You are missing the mark, not by a little bit, but you're missing the mark by a lot. And across the nation, the average is a 60% miss. So if your airport's producing $10 million a year, it probably should be in the $25 million or $30 million range. And that's that's really new. And that's really exciting because now you can justify making a change, making an investment, doing something a little bit differently. You can make a business case. So tell us a little bit about, I mean, a business case for that and for making an investment. For making a change. And making yeah. a change. But maybe tell us a little bit about how you measure the the impact of the of an airport or the the effectiveness of the airport. Great question. I'm absolutely crucial to doing this properly because most people sit there and they say, well, we have a budget and we live within our budget. Well, is that the right budget is is just staying within your budget? You know, that's kind of a low bar in terms of operating a business successfully. So other people came to me and said, well, how about operations? An airport with more operations is obviously more successful. Well, not if they're not the right operations, not if they're not generating economic impact. So what I proposed, and I persuaded a bunch of professors I was on the right track, that the way to do this is to use something called economic impact. And economic impact studies are done right now by 39 of the different states on their airports, on their general aviation airports. And they publish a report, usually every two or three or four years, that say, hey, um, you know, the Gainesville airport has gone from $100 million to $127 million, and that's because we repaved the runway and lengthened it and put in a new ILS or whatever it was they might have done. But people do economic impact studies on millions of things. Well, not millions, but when you're doing a new stadium, when you're putting in new highways or renovating a seaport, these are all they'll say this will generate five hundred million dollars for our community. Well, that's exactly the kind of study that was done here. And as I said, 39 states do them. So I picked three states that had done studies in the same way using the same computer model and compared them very well. And this total economic impact is a great way to measure how that airport gives back to the community. I mean, think about airports, guys. Airports like hide behind chain fences. They say, are you a pilot? If you're not a pilot, you know, I don't really want to uh, have you in here. What, why are you prowling around on the property? Do you have a pass key to get into the building? I mean, we, this is not a friendly, this isn't like Walmart walk in and get a greeter. This is like stay out unless you really have a reason to be here. Well, then how do you reach the public? How do you reach the people who vote? And brings me to the, the poster child for tonight, which is the uh, Lock Haven Airport in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. And the city is deciding it's only generating $10 million worth of economic impact, and they are going to shut it down. And this is the airport where Piper was founded, where they made airplanes for like 40 years. And it's not good enough 
for the town of the city of Lock Haven anymore. Well, that's I'm going to guess that's because it's run by a city employee in town hall. And they're not out there doing things to reach out and be relevant to the community and increase their economic impact. Have I been raving? I apologize if I'm ranting. No, you're being passionate. No, no. I, I think you're. I, your I points, do get passionate about this. Yes, I do. Go ahead. I think your points are very well taken. I've spent a lot of time in the last 20 years working with various general aviation airports. Uh, we worked as a public relations consultant uh, trying to, in fact, when you look in the show notes, you'll see a, uh, a poster that we created to, to bring to uh, uh, an Aseo show about, oh, 10 years ago or something. But it says just what you mentioned, uh, Jonesy. I mean, there's a, a picture of a chain link fence with the uh, do not uh, enter uh, federal facility fines and uh, I said, is this is this what the people in your community see when they approach your airport? Don't look too damn friendly. Um, but again, it's interesting because so many of the airports that I worked with were they were busier than these. But the uh, problem is the same when you have politicians and or even uh, appointed uh, board of directors. The people are often. Actually, not often. Most of the time, they don't know squat about airplanes or aviation, and they usually don't care. They just say, hey, you know, I volunteered for this, or or I get paid $100 a month to attend a meeting, and I don't know, the, the manager says this is what we ought to do, or the manager hired a consultant that said this is what we ought to do. And, and having been one of the fighting consultants trying to give the uh, airport manager advice, uh, when you have more than one consultant saying, well, we ought to go this way, and someone else saying, no, we ought to go that way. Or, or you have a politician that just doesn't even care that all that's important. <clears throat> Megs Field. <clears throat> Megs Field. You they know? don't care. Megs Field is a great example. Yeah. That's right. And Mayor Daly shall forever go down in history as one of the dummies of our, uh, of our time. But, uh, uh, you know, even his, pred- his uh, successor, uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, I, I I met him at a an event. Oh, maybe I forgot what year he was mayor. But uh, and I said, "Hey, Mr. Mayor, are, are you giving any thought to uh, maybe reopening Megs?" And he went, "Are you kidding me? Not on your life!" And it was so clear that he didn't even want to talk about aviation. But then people within the Department of Aviation for the city of Chicago is that the mayor's office doesn't even like O'Hare and Midway. They put up with them because they get so much back in passenger facility charges uh, that, that they're making money on it. But but they don't like that either um, because they don't get it. They don't, well, yeah, but you know, you're, you're, we're doing well. Yeah, but you could be doing a whole lot better. Bingo, Rob, exactly right. So I'm... I'm there with you, uh, co-evangelizing. I think uh, Jonesy, but uh, but it, it's sad when you see places like like Megs or like Lockhaven uh, possibly going under. Let me tell you just a little bit of of how I did this because it's an interesting uh, challenge. As I mentioned, I used the FAA data as a starting point. By the way, everything I did was with public data. I, I could have done this by calling airport managers and interviewing them. But then you have trouble replicating that across the, the many different airports. So my, my goal was to come up with a template 
that you or the next guy could just sort of plug in and, and see how their state or their airport worked. So I did the FAA data as my starting point. Then I got a whole bunch of data from the census, which is an enormous issue in its own right. Amazing data. They know everything about neighborhoods. Then I got satellite data. I actually had images of what the land around the airport was being used as. Was it swamp? Was it water? Was it built up? Was it forest? And so I was able to build models incorporating those variables. And then I also went to every airport's website. And I was amazed at what you can learn from an airport's website. Most of it, unfortunately, bad. (laughs) In the end, I ended up with 241 airports and in three states. And I ended up with 121 variables describing each airport. I mean... At one point, I think the top of my head just I, – I started off with brown hair when I <laughs> yeah. began this project. And then the conclusion was that that I was able to – have you ever heard the expression, when you've seen one general aviation airport, you've seen one general aviation airport? Yes. This study actually proves that's wrong. That is not true. Because if that is true, you see one study – you see one airport, you've seen – one airport, that means there's no knob you can turn. There's no managerial process that I could use as a template and say, hey, any airport that does A and then does B and then does C is going to do better. There's there's no knob to turn. But with this study, I was able to break it down to five or six key variables. Uh, for example, the number one variable in terms of the FAA aeronautical data is simply the length of the longest runway. That predicts a huge amount of the variance of the data. Predicts It's better than having a tower, better than having airline service, and any other variable in that you might want to think about. The next one was a variable that I created combining satellite data with census data, and I ended up calling it economic intensity. So economic intensity is a measure of the number of people you've got and how much money they're generating. It's the census collects uh, payroll data. The poor area, you could have a really widely dispersed area. That's not going to work for an airport. You need a lot of people clustered around that airport. So its economic intensity is higher. And then the, the third and most critical valuable for this, there's others, but I'll skip over them. The most critical one here is the organizational structure. And as I said, 54% of the airports in my study were structured for failure. And so the the best way to structure at least a small airport is to have an independent airport authority or a board or a commission, whatever you want to call it, and have those people have total responsibility for running the airport and catch this this subtlety now and maximize its total economic impact. Don't let them just sit there and file for grants and not know if the grants are going to pay for themselves. Don't let them complain they can't build hangars or we can't get airplane. Solve the problem. Your job, I'm sorry, I'm tapping on the table and creating noise. That the, Your problem is to create economic, put a restaurant in. Maybe get a business at your airport. Find a local business that would prosper from having a, a FedEx you know, pickup every evening, something like that. Be creative about it. And so that's why the independent, no politics connected to economic impact is such a powerful tool. Can I uh, 
before you go on, can I, can I ask you a question that I think might be an exception to the rule? I want to make sure I have the right airport, but isn't it Van Nuys that it's an independent board and they are trying, the independent board is trying to close it down, uh, because of all the, or is that Santa Monica? I'd say, but one of those. No, is, Santa Monica. Santa Monica is, they're trying to close Santa Monica. Yeah. Yeah. And, and isn't that an independent board or is that owned by the? Well, I didn't study California. So I, I can't speak with my dissertation. I can't speak to that particular thing. And but you would expect an independent board would be trying to protect the airport. And hence, and a lot of it comes down to who did the county commissioners put on that board? Absolutely. Another sub finding. And boy, once you start to dig in the data, this gets so interesting. One of the findings I had is not all airport authorities were created equal, which is exactly your point, Micah. All right. Some airport authorities sit on their hands, some boards. Uh, they don't have meetings. They don't publish the minutes of their meetings. So as part of my dissertation, I developed a checklist of 12 things to look for on airport websites. If they did six, seven, ten of those things, it turned out they had a much higher economic impact. The ones that did zero, one, two, and three obviously had very low economic impact. Two interesting things. The ones that did one, two, or three were almost always multifunction departments. Hmm. For example, the, the website was part of the county website. You couldn't find the name of the airport manager, couldn't find the airport phone number, things like that, never updated. My, and my standards were low, guys. If, if, you did, if you updated the airport, the website, once in a year, I said the, the website was up to date. That's a pretty low bar on a website. Sure is, yes. And you know what? The average for all of the websites, 241 airports, the average was 3.8. Hmm. And the best airport had 11. Nobody had all 12. You found something interesting about uh, cases where the airport authority manages several airports. Oh, absolutely. This only was in Florida. And I would love to do further research and see if other states do this. But Florida has five or six instances where the county supervises three or four airports. And they created an airport board and said, go ahead and run that. West Palm Beach, for example, has four or five airports. Uh, Titusville around Cape Kennedy has three, three airports in theirs. And very interesting because you'd say, ah, good plan. They're putting all the experts in one spot. They're giving them lots of autonomy. They're going to rock and roll. And you know what? It works great for the big airport in that area. And then all the affiliated airports suffer and they wither and they die. And I saw it again and again. And it's like, wow, I would have guessed that that was a good idea. But it turns out, statistically speaking, it's a bad way to manage an airport. Look at what happened to, uh, is it Lantana, I think, just north of West Palm Beach? Yes. Uh, and when President Trump was in office, he used to go to West Palm so often that they would just absolutely shut Lantana down. And the flight schools couldn't operate. Uh, it, it was just one loss after another. I, I don't know if they've come back up or, or not. Uh, do you have any news on that? I, I do not have news on that in per se, but I do know that they had a local helicopter. They had a helicopter school there that actually was forced out of business because they couldn't schedule the lessons. I, I know that airport well. My cousin flies in and out of there. It's about two miles from his house. And uh, and it is back and running, but it certainly is a lot slower. And uh, he was taking lessons and giving lessons, and he was closed down 
so many weekends out of the year. Guys, I, I don't know if I should name names, but I'm gonna. And the poster child that I want to highlight in this study is Monroe, North Carolina. All right. Single runway, 6,000 feet long, nice facility. It's only 15 miles outside of Charlotte, and Charlotte's the biggest city in the state. In its area, it's got a huge payroll, uh, a quarter of a million people, uh, and a, excuse me, a half a million people, and a quarter of a million of them are employed. This is an economic powerhouse. It should be doing great. It has $35 million on its economic impact statement. My model says it should be making $194 million, considering the length of its runway and the economic area it serves. So they are missing the boat by something on the order of $160 million. Jobs lost, planes not flying, opportunities missed. Have you found a difference between rural airports and urban or suburban airports? Because I would think, uh, you know, I think about down around Florida, uh, all those airports are surrounded by people and homes and things, all those little airports, whereas uh, up here in Maine, and we'll, we'll talk probably talk about Machias in a little bit, it's completely rural and, uh, and, and town managed, but nobody's complaining about the noise, so there are no issues. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. And that's why that variable I described earlier, economic intensity, is such an important weight. To it. That's how you adjust for exactly that. If you're in a rural area, there's not a whole lot you can do to create economic activity. So your bar is lowered. I'm not going to penalize you compared to West Palm Beach or Jacksonville. Absolutely. And, and there are, are some very good small airports that are doing a great job. But most of them are run by the town. Here's another one. Farmville, Virginia, out in the west part of the state. It's run by the town. It's only got 34,000 people. And its economic impact is $2.6 million. Now, that may not be bad for a small rural community. But my model says it could be as much as 6 or $7 million. So even then, they're, they're missing the boat, even in a rural area like you're describing there. Uh, Jonesy, what kind of reception have you gotten from airports or others in the industry? Uh, have they had an opportunity to uh, look at your results, look at the data? Well, that, that article that, that Rob, well, first of all, my professors loved it. And in fact, if I could toot my own horn for just one tiny second, the reaction to my dissertation was so positive, they are using it as the template for the next gen next group of PhD students coming through. Oh. They're saying, this is what you want to do. This cool. is the kind of analysis you want to, the c consistency and diligence. So I'm fairly comfortable. I did a pretty good job. Uh, but then the article came out in Cessna Pilots magazine, and I got more emails. I believe I got more emails than they've ever gotten on any single article. And I'd like to read you just one. This is from... Camus, Washington, and I'm not even sure where Camus, Washington is, but it's, anyhow, I'm a private pilot, uh, and I'm also an elected county official at Grove Field, One Whiskey One, and this airport is run by the Port Authority, and it's very poorly run, basically not run. A few years back, they even refused state and federal aid. The airport is languishing, there's no manager, and the Port, the port Authority CEO has no interest in the airport. 
Wow. Um, I mean, so that's, that's a great example of, of people who are just so frustrated. Uh, I got another email from Lawrence, Kansas, and Gulfport, uh, Mississippi, and places like that. People are excited about this. People want their airports to be better. And, you know, it's not brain surgery. It's just get it out of the, out of the hands of the politicians and let people who know about airports and care about airports make the magic happen. And by the way, I do not mean to say that politicians are bad people or they're being malicious or that they are incompetent. Could, but I won't. But what I will say, <laughs> but what I will say is it's just not their thing. You know, they're 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 interested in sewers and schools and getting their name in the paper and worrying about getting a federal grant to replace LED lighting, you know, it's they'd rather build a, a public school. Then why not give the airport or the operation of it to some people who really understand it, but give a damn. We want to see this thing be better. And so when a, a consultant comes along that gives us ideas like you, um, the board, after you make your presentation, should be uh, sitting around going, guys, tell me why we shouldn't do this. Uh, is there any good reason? And they go, well, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't really. Uh, you know. And I've been in some of those meetings. So, I mean, it's, it's just appalling uh, that we have any airports at all. And do you know the answer to your question, Rob, is you're asking people to fire themselves. Uh, that that is that's true. That's a little you want me to give up power. What if the new people screw this up? What if they do things that cost me votes? I don't know. I'll it's more concern. It's easier for me just to go with the flow and keep it the way it is. Most of the most people don't even know how their airport got to be managed the way it is. It's just lost in the mists of time. Sure. And a lot of the airports are, uh, at least some of the ones that I operate from or, or look into, operate a number of uh, you know business jets. And uh, when they have that kind of traffic, they often look at the success of an airport of, uh, in terms of the airport is self-sufficient. Yes. Okay. Then I don't need to do anything. Exactly. As long as you don't need any money, I'm happy. As long as you don't need any money and the uh, airport authority doesn't have the uh, ability to tax anybody locally, uh, we're, go do whatever the hell you want. We don't care. Right. But uh, just don't ask us for any money. Let me tell you what we did at our airport. We got exactly the same reaction from our local officials. And we started to go up to Raleigh. We leapfrogged over them. And we went to our state reps and our state senators and we have gotten some very nice grants from the state, including a brand new one for $5 million to renovate our, our terminal. Hmm. So it really does work. But we couldn't get the county commissioners to go to Raleigh. They were too busy, you know, going on date nights or whatever Doing they their do. Thing. But, but then how did the county commissioners react when you kind of went over their heads and, and or around them? Maybe that's a a more politically correct way to say it. But how did they react when you were able to, you and your group were able to grab cash that they didn't even bother to try to uh, obtain? There's a saying that, that answers your question, Rob. And that saying is success has a thousand fathers and failure dies alone. And that's exactly what happens. We came back and said, Hey, look, we got this grant. And the, the, our town fathers were like, Great. We didn't have to do anything. 
So they're, they're very happy with our success. And, and there are others. For example, Sanford, North Carolina. Sanford, North Carolina changed the name of their airport. They got their county uh, economic development guy on their airport authority. And they have gone from $30 million to $52 million in economic impact. They are really moving it up. Newburn is probably the best airport in North Carolina, best managed airport. It serves four counties, and it's got a 12-person board. And they are cranking along, generating almost $500 million a year in economic impact. $500 million. That's pretty so it can 12-person board. Holy smokes. It's a lot of people. Yes. But, yeah. Well, Josie, is there a way that uh, our listeners or uh, others can uh, learn more about the, the data, the, the study that you performed? Is it available out there in, in some form? I know you've... It, it actually is. It's on the University of Florida website. Uh, however, that is only like 100,000 pages of website stuff. Um, I could send a, uh, a summary of the study to you. And... Can I give them my email, Max? Is that of permitted? course? Yes, please do. You know, if somebody wants to ping me and tell me about their local airport and the problems they're having, I would be very, very interested to hear that. And my email is real easy. It's pilotmike2012 at Gmail. Pilotmike2012 at Gmail. So send me a note. And I, I would love to uh, listen and learn and uh, see how, how things can be improved. All right. Excellent. Well, you know, too, I, I was going to say, we, we have the PowerPoint uh, uh, link that you sent, but uh, is there a way we could, uh, you could send us the link to the uh, Uni- University of Florida website where your actual study is hiding? I will go get that and do that for you. I will tell you, gentlemen, it's 180 pages of tedium. Even my wife couldn't read it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have Micah. Because we always give that kind of yeah, give it to Micah, job. he'll read it. Send it, to, yeah, send it to Micah, he'll read it. Yeah, what am Damn. I? The, the Micah GPT. <laughs> All right. Well, Jonesy, we really appreciate it. This has been uh, interesting, interesting conversation. It sounds like uh, some some really good work. It's some really important work that you've done. We appreciate the having the opportunity to share it with our audience. Well, I appreciate your hospitality, and thank you for having me. It's been an honor to meet all four of you. Okay, what's up with the geeks? We'll try to be try to be brief. I'll just mention one thing really quickly. Uh, we talked about the uh, the cranky dork fest for this year, uh, and we had uh, Brian's interviews from that event. Well. Cranky Dorkfest 2024 has been announced. That's going to be on Saturday, September 14th, 2024, of course. 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. local time. That's going to be, at the, as always, the park across from the In-N-Out at LAX. There's no cost for that, no charge. Everybody's welcome. And again, they've teamed up with NYC Aviation to make sure that the Dorkfest lines up with the Spot LAX event. So you can... Uh, dork out on uh, airliners all weekend long. So again, that's September 14th next year. Uh, we'll put a link in the in the show notes to a little bit more information about that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Micah, you've got something coming up pretty quick here with Brian, don't you? 
I'm very, very excited. I'm going to be uh, flying on David Nealon's new airline, Breeze Airways, down to Tampa, Florida on November 11th. My first time on an A220, but for me, it will always be a Bombardier C-Series, uh, assuming the geared turbofans work, of course. Um, but uh, <laughs> oh, geez. But uh, then, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, where Brian did a series of interviews with student pilot Nikki, uh, as she was going through her pilot training, and she is now GA pilot Nikki, and purchased a Cessna 150. She's decided that she wants to come by and take Brian and I each on a flight in her Cessna 150. I've never, I've been in a 152, but never been in a 150. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then uh, Brian and I are, we're going to have a meetup. And I think we announced it last week, but it's going to be Sunday, November 12th at 4 p.m. It's going to be at Your Pizza Shop. No, Rob, it's not Deep Dish Chicago Pizza. The place is called Your Pizza Shop. And that's at uh, 1200 8th Avenue in Largo, Florida. And that's uh, going to be Sunday, November 12th at 4 o'clock. And hope some of you guys that may be down there can uh, that are listening might be able to stop by. We'd love to meet you. Fantastic. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australia News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 29th of October, 2023. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Australia Desk for episode 772. Grant, it was great to take a week off last week and have a rest after doing our first one in like four months. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it did uh, kind of leave us a little drained, didn't it? Uh, it sure did. Well, you know, uh, being drained is my specialty at the moment with all these <laughs> medications I'm on. Good Lord, it just floors me. Yeah, and I was busy doing a beer sampling with some friends. So, mm, yeah, sorry, guys. No no desk last week. Oh, sorry. Sorry, were you talking there, Grant? I think I may have I nodded probably. off. <laughs> Oh, did I mention it just hits me out of the blue? Anyway, <laughs> anyway. And that's why you're not driving at the moment. Exactly right. Okay, Grant. Well, anyway, um, now before we uh, go into the stories of the week, we did mention in the last one uh, about uh, repatriation flights out of Israel and the fact that Qantas was doing it. And I think I did ponder why it would be that the Royal Australian Air Force wasn't doing that. And, well, Grant, they must have been listening because uh, no sooner had we recorded that. And, uh, bang. Da, da, da. <laughs> That's right. Uh, a KC-30A, the uh, tanker, sorry, David, and a C-17A, the mighty <clears throat> Globemaster 3, saying it correctly, unlike Channel 7. Yes. Uh, yeah, a couple of aircraft flew in, got a, a bunch of people and took them out to uh, Dubai where they were then on travelled back to Australia. Yeah, so still going eventually on Qantas, but uh, good to see that the Air Force uh, has stepped up and uh, the government, or I guess the government has stepped up and sent the Air Force in to do that, and I think that's a very, very wise move. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not sure how many people. It's actually it's saying here maybe around a, 255. There we go. Okay, so, uh, you know, not a lot there. They reckon there's more than 1,200 Australians there. But, boy, I tell you what, Grant, the way things are going over in that part of the world, I'd want to be getting out of there mm-hmm. if it were me. Yeah, but, not uh, a good look. Yeah, I know that's a, a pretty sensitive topic, so we won't dwell on that one too much. Let's uh, go on to some topics that may be sensitive for our national flag carrier, Qantas, speaking of them, because it looks like they're no longer the most popular people on the block. No, no, they are no longer Australia's most trusted transport brand. In fact, Virgin has pipped them to the post on that one in the Roy Morgan Trusted Brand Awards for 2023. Yeah, of course, Roy Morgan is a big uh, survey company here and they do all sorts of research for all sorts of brands. But uh, 
Doing a, uh, a poll here of 25,000 Australians over the course of the last year, it, uh, it would seem as though um, Qantas... Now, of course, Qantas has been mired in controversy over the uh, the last few months. They've uh, not been exactly popular. In fact, uh, something we actually didn't mention is that the, uh, the departure of their CEO, Alan Joyce, which was uh, supposed to be for later this year, he ended up leaving a lot earlier and uh, taking a, a truckload of money with him, by the way. Oh, yeah. But, uh, that, and, that, and in fact, Grant, that wouldn't have helped, uh, you know, uh, Qantas's uh, uh, no. brand as well either. Nope, no, it certainly did not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, let's just say that uh, Qantas have taken a beating and from all that I'm hearing inside and out and around the place, a lot. it's not just the tall poppy, let's beat them down. There was, it's, it's been a number of months and or years of frustration, anger, and just all coming out at once and everyone's just over Qantas's. Mm. Okay, they're over Qantas's position on many things. Yeah, this is true, and I think um, Qantas is now looking at. Uh, you know, in fact, they have started a new Hearts and Minds campaign to try and win people back over again. I think that's going to be a, a bit of a long term thing for them. But uh, Grant, I mean, you're a um, a pretty regular flyer with Virgin, and you've always uh, you know been an advocate for them. You know, for me, I'm happy to fly either, really. I mean, it, it doesn't really bother me. As long as it's not Jetstar, I'm happy. <laughs> friends don't let friends fly Jetstar. Sorry, guys. Uh, but, yeah, look, it's uh, I do fly Qantas. I just use them to go to and from New Zealand for the, the trip, recent trip. And, uh, look, you know, absolutely brilliant staff, really went over and above. But I'll tell you what, Qantas are picking a really interesting time to try and win the hearts and minds by, oh, I don't know, putting up airfares, anyone? Yes, yes. In fact, fact, in the last week or so, they've actually announced that uh, due to many factors, not the least of which is the uh, skyrocketing price of fuel at the moment, along with some other uh, global pressures, of course, that uh, they'll be uh, putting a uh, a fair increase in for their flights of around 3.5% for Qantas mainline flights and 3% for Jetstar. So, Grant, there's 3% more reasons for you not to want to fly Jetstar, I guess. (laughs) It's hard to get over 100%. But, yes, some days days you do have to fly Jetstar, and it's a fascinating experience. Let's just put it that way when you have to. Now, of course, this is a commercial reality, of course. Um, You know, I would, if I had to guess... I'd say all of Qantas's competitors will end up having to do the same. Obviously, with uh, everything that's going on in the Middle East right now, you know, fuel prices are high. So, obviously, that's going to have a big uh, cost on all airlines. Uh, they actually have not copped a lot of flack uh, in the media so far. In fact, uh, aviation analyst Keith Tonkin from Aviation Projects uh, had this to say. It certainly wasn't expected, but in the circumstances, I guess it's probably a pretty fair call given that fuel prices are still going up and there's some uncertainty in the world. And that's very true. And I think that's basically the reaction, in fact, that's come from most quarters uh, when it comes to this announcement. Oh, it certainly has. And, uh, yeah, people are like, what else are they going to do to us? They've already done everything. Oh, look, they just put their prices up. Yep, that's great. We're paying more for their bad service, which is kind of nasty because you know, the, the onboard crew are really good. But, yeah, unfortunately, there's just some nastiness going around. You know, the other thing I noticed too, Grant, I mean, if you look at flying from Australia to the US at the moment, I mean, um, they are still not flying at uh, full capacity on those routes. No airline is. In fact, even the US carriers that come here, it's really expensive to fly to the US right now. Uh, yeah, very. Um, a lot of airlines are trying to make back all the money they lost during the uh, lockdowns and pandemic and so on. 
Mm. Well, Grant, uh, looking a bit more locally, there'll be one operator who might not be making some money for a while, and that's a local skydive operator that was uh, involved in a crash just recently, just south of Melbourne at a lovely place called Bowen Heads. Now, look, Grant, um, I know you're pretty keen to go skydiving. I, I, I don't know that I'm <laughs> you know, actually all that keen to jump out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft, but even less so when it gets a few hundred feet in the air and then uh, loses engine power and then plonks back down on the ground. Everybody walked away from that crash, which is, uh, which is a good thing, but uh, one of the actually interesting things is that one of the people on board uh, this aircraft, a Cessna caravan, was a local member of parliament here, uh, Paul Edbrook. Now, Paul Edbrook actually is a former professional firefighter. <laughs> so uh, that's somebody that you'd want to have on board. And uh, Paul actually, I think, um, actually engaged in a bit of first aid for a few other people there because, let's face it, he's qualified to do it. So, uh, you know, know right? he's not from a uh, side of politics that I'd ever consider voting for, Grant, I must say. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, actually, I, I um, many years ago, I uh, did a, about an eight-year stint as a firefighter and I, I seem to remember actually turning out with him one time before and, um, he seems like a pretty nice fella, actually. But uh, uh, not only that, Grant, uh, a few days after he survived that plane crash, he was actually um, walking past or driving past a local restaurant where somebody was having a cardiac arrest and he just happened to hop in and save that gentleman as well. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Oh. You know what, Paul Edbrook, if you're listening, I think you should give up being an MP. I think, uh, you know, a career back in the emergency services is right where you belong, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was the right person at the right time, that's for sure. And uh, he's still going to keep doing his skydiving hobby. He's not letting this. He said that wasn't a skydiving problem. That was a light aircraft problem. And the number of skydivers I know, one of them came up to me the other day and said, I had the scariest experience skydiving the other day. I'm like, oh, what was that? He said, I had to land in the plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> nice one, mate. Oh, they are. They are a... Um... They're an interesting lot, skydivers. I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, Grant, uh, talking about uh, you know getting close to the ground and getting about as far away from the ground as we can possibly do it, uh, Grant, do we have a Space Force here or something? No, no, we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> and we do have – we're not going there. Don't go there. I just thought uh, I'd drop that in as a bit of a trigger word for you. Sorry about that, bud. <laughs> twitch, twitch. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no. Uh, but what has happened is that President Biden and Prime Minister Albanese have signed a technology safeguards agreement, an agreement between the US and Australia that uh, removes the last barrier that was preventing US space technology from being launched in Australia. So it means that from our launch sites, we can launch US rockets, we can launch uh, US spacecraft on board our own rockets and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, that's going to be really good for our uh, space industry that the government unfunded, but don't go there. Uh, unfunded. The RASF, the Royal Australian Space Force. You know, Grant, it does have a, have a good uh, ring to it. Come on, uh, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, space is part of the, the RAF, okay? Royal Australian Air Force includes space. Okay, so, yeah. all right. Oh, I can go with that. I can go with that. So, yeah, lots of, lots of potential, and we're looking forward to seeing what happens. And despite government's best efforts, people are out there making it happen. Okay, well, you know what? You've got to love government sometimes, don't you? I don't. Uh, well, mate, it, do, it doesn't matter which party they are. Uh, they're all just a bunch of drongos. Pretty much. And unfortunately, so that's that's the political news today from Grant. I'll... You know, I've, I've put another another level on my soapbox. Oh, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have dropped in that keyword. I, I'm sorry about that, mate. I didn't mean to do that and make you get all twitchy. <laughs> you know, too late. Too late. And uh, look, something that will probably get me all twitchy, and we won't cover it now, but we might just signal it for the next Australia desk, is that our good friends at the Civil Aviation Safety Authority have uh, started talking about doing something about basic med. So uh, 
that's that's really interesting. Actually, we might cover that in the next desk, I think. Yeah, self-declared medicals. We'll see how that pans out. Yeah, and I think in my current uh, medical uh, predicament, Grant, I don't think I'll be doing any basic meds or any pilot medicals, in fact, for quite some time. That's a little bit sad, isn't it? But uh, anyway. Well, at least a few weeks, mate. Yeah, at least as long as I get my railway medical back and I can start paying the bills. That'll be, yeah, that's always a good thing. Because God knows we can't survive doing podcasting in Australia, Desk. We've been trying that for 15 years. <laughs> well, not when fuel down here is about $5.50 a gallon, yowch, US. Yowch. Okay, yeah. well, uh, as we contemplate that wonderful news, that's everything we have for you on this week's Australia Desk. I guess that since we've signaled it, Grant, we'll be back next week. Oh, wow. We're setting up a trend again? This could be bad. Excellent. Cheers, folks. <laughs> All right, let's jump into a little bit of listener mail, um, and we're going to have to uh, kind of limit it to just a couple uh, so we don't run over too long. But we heard from Eric, who wrote to us, uh, I listened to your podcast on my frequent drives between Blacksburg and the D.C. area, enjoyed your recent podcast on the truss-braced wing, and wanted to bring some contextual history He says this concept was developed and explored at Virginia Tech more than 25 years ago. Now, he's got some links. Uh, He's got a link uh, to a slide deck from uh, 1997 from the Department of Aerospace and Ocean Engineering um, at uh, VT, Virginia Tech, and uh, also an AIAA paper from 2005. He says there was a substantial team working on this. Uh, including uh, quite a number of individuals. And he's got a photo that we'll put in the show notes of this uh, design. This is a wind tunnel test from 2013 at NASA Langley. And uh, you can see a, it's a, you know an, an early uh, design study on this concept. And uh, Eric says it's taken 25 years, 25 plus years, to go from academic concept to the NASA X. 66A that we talked about previously. It says if uh, if the X-plane is successful, it will probably be another decade or two until Boeing is building and selling them. Well, you know what might actually help them sell it is if they added another wing. Because right now oh, it's, geez. you know, how many people want to buy a, an airplane? All right, so we have to wing? explain what you're talking about because no, people listening won't see. So the wind tunnel uh, model is a right. Check the show notes. The wind tunnel model is a uh, is a fuselage. It might even be half a fuselage, but with one wing. You don't need to test both wings because they're, you know, these things are symmetric. So you only need half a model. So that's cool. And uh, Eric owns a uh, Bonanza S thirty five. And we also heard from Philip, and he wrote in about our conversation about the caps on flights at uh, Schiphol Airport, and he said, uh, in the discussion, you mentioned the dent in tourism this will make and how harmful this is. He says, well, Amsterdam is crumbling under the weight of mass tourism. Airbnb is putting real pressure on the housing market and, and are facing curbs from the authorities. We see that here, too, as well. Uh, residents and businesses are complaining about the hordes of party tourists who crowd the inner city, so I'm not sure whether there will be much opposition to the cap from that side. But on the same topic, we also heard from Tim, who says that uh, he's been listening since about 2016, 
and he wanted to uh, comment on and shed a little bit of local light on this discussion about the intended cut to the number of flights per year from Schiphol Airport. Now, he's Dutch, and he says, I thought I might be able to provide a bit of context. So he says, Schiphol is located close to Amsterdam. It's a very densely populated area, and the airport has expanded massively, he says, over the years. There have been issues and complaints and lawsuits about the noise and pollution for as long as I can remember, he says. And it's a bit of a controversial topic in some parts. And also that um, a, a climate group has actually sued the government claiming that they were not adhering to their own climate legislation and they won. This particularly, uh, this specifically pertains to the emissions of nitrous oxides and it forced a sudden overnight drop in pretty much all government construction, among other things. So he says, basically, we were over the limit and could not create new emissions in buildings, et cetera, with drop, without dropping below the allotted limit first. So in the attempt to reduce emissions, the government has tried to scale down the number of agricultural sectors, and that's caused massive protests by farmers, got fairly heated. So this is a big issue in that area. So, uh, you know, when we look at an air travel cap on um, this uh, this major international airport from our admittedly U.S. perspectives, we, we kind of think of it one way. And he's uh, um, explaining, Tim is explaining how, you know, they have a kind of a different situation over there. And so uh, a cap on flights is a little bit different from their perspective than it would be from our perspective. And Rob, he had a comment on something that you that you mentioned. And I, I guess, was it you that mentioned this? I, I don't, I actually, uh, Tim, you may have better ears than uh, I do or a better memory. I don't remember saying anything terribly critical, but it it may have been my my terrific sarcastic wit saying, you know what, these climate change folks are never going to be happy until there, there are no flights at all. Uh, <clears throat> at least that's what I think. Uh, and, and he took that to mean that, uh, you know, why he, he couldn't understand why I was saying that because people have a right to complain. How does anything get done if people don't, you know, point the finger and saying, you know, this is not okay with us. And, and as I did say in the segment, all of the climate issues that we face here in the U.S. actually originated in Europe uh, because the Europeans were way ahead of us on those sorts of things. But again, I I don't remember saying this, Tim, so I'm not trying to be uh, uh, evasive uh, but my brain is old, and uh, but again, I wasn't trying to say that people shouldn't complain when they they feel, you know. But again, what's the limit? How how? Let me be more clear about that. What is the limit at which people will say, okay, we we see a balance here because so far people have not seen a uh, a balance to some of the emissions concerns uh, when there was the uh, e-base. Uh, show in uh, in Europe last year, which is the kind of the European equivalent of the uh, business aviation show here in the States, uh, the, uh, the um, protesters broke through the fence and they damaged uh, a number of aircraft, some pretty expensive airplanes. I mean, they dumped uh, 
orange paint on one of them. Uh, the airplane was actually totaled because they could not repair it uh, from that kind of damage. And um, so I'm just saying, okay, you you have your moment in in the in the sun to talk about emissions, but you know transportation has a right to exist as well if you believe in capitalism in any way, shape, or form, where is the balance? And uh, at least that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, I I have a little bit of a different take on it, but uh, I will say that, you know, when you talk about balance, when you use that term balance, and we're talking in, in, you know, the aviation context here, but it applies in other industries as well. But in the aviation context, I view that concept of balance as being fluid. And I think that the balance is going to change year by year. The consensus for what the balance is today, I think, will be different than what the consensus is five years from now, in 10 years from now, and 20 years from now. I, I, I really think that's going to change. All right. Marcin wrote in, and, well, he sent a link. Um, this is from IOT World Today. Boeing Air Taxi Company flies in Los Angeles. So um, you may know that, um, and, and Dave and I have talked about this um, in the past, uh, there's a Boeing subsidiary named Whisk Aero, and they've conducted a public demonstration flight. This is a fully self-flying uh, electric aerial vehicle. They did this in, uh, in Los Angeles, an eVTOL vehicle. Uh, this one seats four people. Has a 50-foot fixed wingspan, cruises at about 4,000 feet, speeds up to 135. And I guess right now they're flying it, uh, well, they're self-flying it with human oversight, uh, which is probably because they'd rather do it that way than put a human being in the thing right at this point. And ultimately, these, you know, the eVTOL community is looking to develop autonomous aircraft anyway. Um, but uh, the particularly interesting thing about this is this is a Boeing subsidiary. So um, there are a lot of eVTOL companies out there. There's a lot of aspirations for eVTOL. But the, uh, you know, the, the majors, the airframers, the Boeings and, and Airbuses and others are um, not standing by idly just watching that industry, that market, whatever it is, develop without them. Um, so that's a, a milestone there. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. There's also a video that we'll have in the show notes, too, that you can uh, take a look at and see this. Max, that story actually nicely complements the skip hole story in a way you might not expect. At our airport, we have been working on getting one of these EV tool companies to uh, to get interested in offering services from our, our field. Ah. And that's a process that's in the works. But they were describing a flight that they did from Plattsburgh, New York, to Westchester. So you guys all know, you know, a couple hundred miles down the Hudson River kind of thing, all right? And they had their eVTOL come down, and with it came a helicopter to photograph it in flight going over the Tappan Zee Bridge and stuff like that. The helicopter used $750 of fuel. The eVTOL used $17 of electricity. Wow. How about if you could put some of those flights into skip hole and make them all electric like that? That would change change the paradigm big time. Absolutely. True, but of course you have to 
kind of measure apples with apples and how much, you know, what kind of useful load did the helicopter have versus the EV toll? Um, and, and what kind of, I mean, that is, that's quite a flight from Plattsburgh down to, down to HPN. I mean, uh, that's impressive. I mean, again, how many people could that, uh, uh, vehicle carry um but you know again th- this is the the yin and the yang i mean that hey uh you know we're gonna we're starting we're starting off with these ridiculous you know w- what's next you're gonna tell me you're gonna build a horseless carriage and it's gonna put my horses in the stable out of out of jobs i mean that's ridiculous look at all the smoke and the noise those stupid machines make it'll never work uh and, you know, it's and, so funny you say that, Rob, because I have described this to people as like these new airplanes are the Model T of what's going to be coming in the next 30 or 40 years. Compare the Model to T to what you're driving today, you know, and it's just give it some time. It's it's coming. I, I believe it. We can have any any color we want as long as it's white uh, you know, or something. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, it's coming, but we're going. Uh, we've uh, kind of used up our time here. So we want to thank all of you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. And we want to thank our guest, Dr. Mike Jones. Do you use doctor when you uh, introduce yourself? Uh, only if she's cute and I'm trying to impress her. Got it. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Jonesy. Really appreciate it. Every pilot I've known is shallow. At least there are two of us here <laughs> that will admit that we're shallow. So, uh you know, I'm sure we'll get heat for that. All right. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Uh, as always, the uh, permanent redirect link to the show notes is airplanegeeks.com slash 772. That's the episode number. And our email is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Mr. David Vanderhoof, anything uh, in closing? If you do work at an airport, make sure that you're – um, non-English speaking tourists, um, do not try to cross the runway to go look at other airplanes on the other side of the airport, just as a safety tip. But other than that, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum here in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and of course, on the various interwebs. All right, good. And, and Rob Mark, how about you? Uh, they'll find uh, me here. Every week, as much as uh, I, I I like to say I'm here because I enjoy it, Micah makes me. He calls <laughs> me every week and says, Rob, it's that time again. So, I mean, that's why he and I play the way we do. Uh, but we've always been like that, haven't we, Micah? It started when you started picking on my mom, and we fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Remember that? Oh, God. And... I, you know, I don't actually like to go back and listen because it's made me feel so guilty for so many years. That I thought, oh, God, what did I say to that poor man? To uh, w- what episode was that, Mike? Do you remember? I, I don't remember right now. No, but but you know, she met you since then, and 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 she decided she loved you anyway. So that was okay. She was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. She really was. Um, but uh, anyway, so they'll find us uh, here uh, at Jetwine at. Uh, uh, you know, some of the pages of Aviation Week uh, or AOPA Pilot or uh, uh, who knows where. Uh, it, just hanging out around airplanes most of the time, if I can get away with it. Great. 
And how about you, Micah? Well, of course, I expect that Brian's going to get some email at I am really offended at yahoo.com. But if that doesn't happen, you can find me on, uh, on Twitter or is it X or maybe it's, it would be pronounced zitter now, but I am at Maine Fly, Maine like the state of Maine, M-A-I-N-E and fly like I'm going to go flying in two weeks, Maine Fly. I'm also on uh, Mastodon and, and Blue Sky, in fact, with that same ID. So, right. uh, oh, good. pretty fun. All right. Jonesy, do you have any, uh, social media presence or a website or something that you want to plug? Um, I'm just on, on LinkedIn, Mike Jones, zero six, two, six and pilot Mike, 2012 at Gmail is the easiest way to reach me. I'm old fashioned, Max. What can I tell you? That's perfect. That's uh, you'll live longer that way. I'm sure <laughs> we all would. All right. And I'm Max flight. You can uh, learn more about where I hang out by visiting 30,000 feet.com. And you could also Google his, his public record, uh, you'll be able to track his Don't do that. Uh, prison time. And uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't going to mention that. I'm sorry, Max. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty night. Miska, Muska, Mouseketeer, Airplane Geeks, and time is here. Keep the blue side up, and thanks for listening. <laughs>